I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. In today's mini-episode, we continue watching Season 1 of The Leftovers. But before we do that, just remember this. They're not our dogs. Not anymore. I'm Justin Hamilton, and you're entering the world of Big Squid. Before we get into the next episode of The Leftovers, I have a hot off the presses announcement specifically for people in Adelaide. I'm performing a one-off show at the Rhino Room at 7.30pm on the 23rd of February, which is this coming Tuesday. I'm recording this Thursday afternoon and have literally just signed off on this like minutes ago. Like it was one of those things where it's like, are you free Tuesday? And I was sort of like, nah, not really. Oh, there's this gig at Flinders University during the day. And I was like, oh, that's insane. I used to perform at Flinders Uni back in the mid-90s. <laughs> mid-90s. I can't wait to be relatable for the kids going to uni these days. And then it was like, well, I'm going to be in Adelaide. And I know there's some people that can't get over from Melbourne. And there was some spaces open at the Rhino Room. And I thought, well, why don't we do a one-off show? You can get tickets on sale at Adelaide Comedy or On The Door. Maybe get in just to make certain. Uh, The show is called Fringe Mode and I'm celebrating my 25th anniversary at the Adelaide Fringe. I didn't even realise it. My first Fringe was back in 1996, which is just so last century. Am I right? (laughs) So once again, this has all been so last second due to COVID restrictions and I've got some other kind of projects and writing assignments that are moving around and of course this podcast which is my main priority so to be able to make this happen I'm really wrapped and I'm really excited to be able to swing into Adelaide for 24 hours have a bit of mum time see some friends do a gig go to the rhino room see you 
unwrapped. This is going to be fantastic. If you're free that night and can make it, I would love to see you there. All right, let's dig into the second episode of The Leftovers entitled Penguin One, Us Zero. How to start for you, Dad? That depends on what you mean by it. You steal my bagels this morning? Did I what? There's a gun in her purse. Why are we following her? Because she's dangerous. She's a really bad influence on you, man. You here on your own free will? She stuck off in the middle of the night so she could be with them! This girl is everything. Lizzie! I don't know. Mr. Garvey, I need you to come with me. We begin with an action scene as government agents decide that Holy Wayne is a national threat after his dealings with the US congressman in the previous episode. Tom manages to save Christine, who seems to be the girl that Holy Wayne is the most interested in. And the way he saves her is he shoots an agent dead and then goes on the run with Christine to meet Wayne at a safe house. Yet when they arrive, Holy Wayne's people are dead. Wayne tells Tom to keep Christine safe as she is everything. And then Wayne disappears to hide from the government. Kevin is awoken by Amy in his bed and is led outside to the forest where the dog shooter is observing a member of the guilty remnant, possibly Laurie. She begins to run as he shoots and then warns Kevin that his feet are on fire. Kevin wakes from this dream and discovers his neighbour has started a fire next door trying to incinerate the belongings of his brother who is one of the departed. There's a scene that is so kind of surreal but Kevin burns his foot and when he looks down it's the brother's dentures. Oh, so weird. Kevin then goes and sees his therapist about the supposed shooting of dogs with the mystery man. The therapist and his fellow police officers aren't certain about Kevin's mental state because they can't identify this mystery man. They can't find his Jeep. They can't find who this person is. And when the mystery man's Jeep is found in Kevin's driveway, more questions are raised. Jill and Amy bump into Nora Durst, the woman who lost her whole family on the day of the sudden departed, and Jill notices a gun in Nora's handbag. They ditch school and talk the twins, (laughs) my favourite characters, into following Nora to her place of work. She has to question people who have lost family members on the day of the departure so those families can claim government assistance. Laurie tries to help Meg become a member of the Guilty Remnant, but Meg is willful and pushes back. Laurie takes on the challenge, even though people think Meg is possibly not correct and right for their cult. So that's basically what happens in that episode, and let's uh, talk about, uh, you know, how we feel about it. And we have to begin, this is the first episode where we see the opening titles with the music by Max Richter. I love Richter's soundtrack all throughout the series, and I think this opening captures the emotional turmoil that every character is experiencing. I also love the opening, but I remember it being a part of the criticism of the first season, that it was too over-the-top and serious. I always saw that opening as being an insight into what the world was feeling after the departure. That is exactly how the world would be reacting. And I don't know if you don't believe that. Look at the Bible Belt in any country for the way they salivate at the idea this is the end and God is going to wreak some holy vengeance on the land and free the believers from all earthly shackles. Obviously something I do not buy into, but I am a little bit fascinated by it. 
And we will get more into those ideas in the very next episode, which focuses on a certain reverend. There's some interesting things going on, even in parts of the storyline, that are the least interesting for me. The Holy Wayne storyline isn't as compelling as the everyday issues back in Mapleton, which is funny because this is a storyline that has all the action, right? Yet hearing that Wayne lost a child during The Departed at least gives you some insight into what has happened here, that even though he's super creepy and untrustworthy, he's also someone dealing with grief in his own way. That's not me saying that everything he's doing is right, but it's just good to remember that. I also find it interesting after Tom shoots the agent in cold blood, he refuses Wayne's healing hug. This might be the first sign that Tom is realising that maybe there's some pain you should hold on to. Or is he beginning to suspect Wayne isn't everything he says he is? I don't know how much I'd trust a person who kisses a dead man after they've been shot for his cause. Like, that was weird, wasn't it? It was a lingering kiss too. It's like, oh, what is happening here? By the way, has anyone ever really touched a dead body before? It is... Bizarre. I know this seems quite macabre, but uh, when my grandfather died, I went and kissed him goodbye. And just because I was so overwhelmed with grief, I didn't, for the life of me, take into account that he'd be really cold. <laughs> it was like, oh, it was a real, real shock in this moment of being really sad, suddenly thinking, oh my God, is this going to end up like Dumb and Dumber and I'm going to end up stuck to my grandfather? <laughs> anyway, him kissing that dead man is weird. Also, for all of his ways with the spiritual world and his ability to heal people, isn't there just something a little sad that when Wayne hands Tommy the new phone, he tells Tommy he has to find his own charger because he lost his? Like, (laughs) the holy man who can't find his charger? I don't know. This is another sign where I think there's really funny things in these episodes. And even though there is high emotion and there's all this turmoil and angst and existentialism, that makes me laugh. It's interesting to look into the world of the guilty remnant and uh, the way that Meg uh, gives us our, our way in. You know, we get to see them through her eyes. Once again, uh, some more darkly funny lines, like after following Laurie out into the forest with the axe and Meg remarks, I thought you were bringing me out to kill me or something. <laughs> Keep an eye on Meg, though. There's already hints of where her character is going as she is pushing back against the rules, pushing back against the idea of the Guilty Remnant. This halfway place that you have to enter before you can fully join the Guilty Remnant is a limbo of sort that feels like it reflects the rest of a world that wonders what to do three years on after the sudden departure. Yet you can see the appeal of this place to Meg. With everyone full of feelings and emotions they can't control, to be able to go to a place that numbs you and frees you from your world, you can understand how people find their way there. Just look at Laurie, who has taken a vow of silence, abandoned her family, left her hot cop husband, (laughs) as Meg described him, and has devoted her life to stalking new recruits. She obviously wants to feel less, even though her face betrays what it's quite clearly so many emotions still bubbling away inside of her. Her feelings are pushed deep down. If you look closely, they're still there on the surface. You see them pop up in little grimaces or in the tiny lines of her expression, in her sad eyes and the way they look at the world. 
One of the things I love about this series is that the family we centre on is a family that didn't lose anyone. Well, didn't lose anyone to the sudden departure anyway. Of all the Garveys, Jewel seems to be dealing the best. She's still struggling, but she still has an ability to be a normal teenager and also has held on to a sense of empathy. The way she is fascinated by Nora and the look they share as they drive by suggests a connection even they can't fathom at this point. I enjoy Jill's storyline because I like her. I like her friend Amy, and they in some way feel very much like the teenage girls that I know, my friend's kids. I've seen them grow up. There's there's just little ways that they talk to each other that seem uh, very relatable and, and recognisable. Also, I get to see more of the twins. Like, don't you love the twins? Like, they're adorable. Like, when you first meet them, you go, oh, okay, who are these guys? And then I'm like, I'll be in every episode. I especially love the response when Amy asks if uh, one of them has any hand cream. And he replies, I'm a man. Why would I have hand cream? <laughs> like a man. So cute. And also, damn, I I know a lot of men with hand cream. <laughs> the world has changed. We begin to see more of Nora and her complicated life. I find her response to the town and everyone in it fascinating. Everyone knows who she is. And they've already made up their mind on who she is. She's poor Nora Durst, the woman who lost her whole family. Imagine the anguish and soul-searching she's gone through for three years to finally arrive at this point where she starts using it to her advantage in little ways, like deliberately knocking the coffee cup off the table as a test to see what people will let her do, what people will let slide. She's also walking around with a gun, And bear in mind the conversation that Jill and Amy have about the gun. Because it's quite funny, because they're throwing around ideas of what she would use the gun for. And it's over the top, and a little bit trite, and very teenager. And I think if you haven't seen this before, just keep that conversation in the back of your head. And we will come back to this in latter episodes of this podcast. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Then watching Nora at work as a government agent providing financial compensation to other survivors that have had a very similar experience to her. It's once again fascinating and it's a real insight into her as a character, uh, into Nora as a person. She's all business. But like Laurie, her eyes betray the pain that is deep inside of her. It's almost imperceptible. It kind of, I don't know how Carrie Coon does this, but it just kind of flashes. She's in complete control, and then you just see, just just a, a fleeting, fleeting moment. And you kind of notice it when the elderly couple revealed that their departed son had Down syndrome. And it's it's there. You can also see it on the periphery of her mouth. Just before she returns to the questions that are so cold, but because of bureaucracy, these questions have to be asked. On the surface, Nora at least appears to be someone who has found an inner peace and moved on, especially in comparison to the other characters who have had to run to different types of cults to survive or 
are left questioning their own sanity while they remain in the so-called real world. And that brings us to Kevin Garvey. His dreams are filled with disturbing images like his daughter's friend approaching him in his bed. By the way, I, I like even in his dream, he knows that that's not right. That says something good about Kevin. I was very happy with that little bit. But then she takes him out to see his dog shooter friend lining the guilty remnant in his sight. He's stuck with a therapist who suggests maybe the dog shooter is a figment of his imagination since nobody can find any possibility that this guy even exists. Sure, they find his Jeep, but even when the Jeep is found in Kevin's driveway with the keys on the dash, you're starting to think, is this going full fight club at any moment? I tell you what, Justin Theroux has got the body to be in a fight club. Like, holy shit. Like... Jennifer Aniston has been married to Brad Pitt and Justin Theroux, and as someone who identifies as heterosexual, they are two male bodies. <laughs> anytime I see them, you just want to go, oh, well done. So that's what artwork looks like. Is this what would happen if Michelangelo's Statue of David could come to life? Like, what is happening here? So it's interesting uh, when the dog shooter turns up at Kevin's house. By the way, the dog shooter's name is Dean. I'll just keep calling him Dean. It's easier to say Dean than the dog shooter over and over again. So when Dean turns up to Kevin's house, we're left wondering what is happening here. And it's, it's kind of creepy because like a vampire, he asks Kevin if he's going to invite him in. That's such a supernatural connotation. Or it's a sign of someone having a complete mental breakdown. Yet when Jill and Amy arrive and they acknowledge that there is someone there, we're even more confused as to what might be happening to Kevin at this moment. Like they hold the beers. He brought the beers. Like what's happening? Everyone is questioning Kevin's headspace, even Kevin. And when he visits his father, well, the problem is everyone knows something went terribly wrong with Kevin's father when he was chief of police. So, Kevin visiting his father at the psych ward, there's all these connotations that affect Kevin Jr. Like, of course he wants to go and see his dad, but his dad has obviously had the cheese slip off the cracker at some point. We've seen that flash in the pilot of him running naked through the suburbs. And then even to go and visit him is to have to confront what might be going on personally. And then on the outside of that, everyone is wondering what's going on with Kevin Jr. So there's just so much going on, even in this very kind of normal visit. Well, not not normal because it's a psych ward, but, you know, just a very simple act of visiting your father. It's fascinating to watch Kevin Garvey Sr. played wonderfully by Scott Glenn. Whew! Like, so good. His first reaction to seeing his son is to quote the Bible and declare, the prodigal son returns. Once again, keep these religious comments and imagery in the back of your head. Kevin Sr. might be struggling, but he knows his son and can read him like a book. He's still funny, like when he tells his son the whole cast of Perfect Strangers Departed. We talked about this in the previous podcast, but, oh man, that is just inspired. But the problem is, is that Kevin, even when he speaks sense, 
it's mixed with talking to people who aren't there, having full conversations that exhaust and frighten his son. And then there's that moment when Kevin Senior tells his son, they said they sent or are sending someone to help you. And suddenly you're wondering, well, who's Kevin Senior talking to? Who did they send? Who are they going to send? Is it the dog shooter? Is it Dean? Is Dean an angel? Is Dean a ghost that can manifest in this world? Is there someone else who's coming to help Kevin? Or is this all just a coincidence and we're looking for patterns to make sense of a world that makes little sense? That's something that you and I do all the time. Everyone does all the time. We look for meaning in a world where there possibly is very little. And when you're at your lowest, who doesn't put too much stock in something that has a simple solution? I remember at my low points, I'd concentrate too much on a part of my life that was essentially insignificant because that was easier than confronting the stresses that surrounded me. Kevin's obsession with where his bagel went reminded me of a time in my life where I just had this thing where I had an inability to make a printer work. I used to get so angry. I would smash printers all the time. I did it so often. I turned it into a routine. It was a successful routine. People found it really funny. It got to a point where people all over Australia would send me photos of smash printers that they would see lying on the side of the road. And they'd ask me, hey, is, is this your doing? I even had someone in Tasmania offer for me to come down and take a baseball bat to all their old princes that they needed to ditch. It made for a very funny gag. But when I look back on it, around that time, I wasn't very happy as a person. And the truth is, I was enjoying leaning into my inability to deal with something that didn't have to be an issue. Because lamenting that you can't make a printer work is much easier than lamenting that you can't make yourself work. Kevin wonders where his bagel went and what that might signify. Yet when he takes his tools to work and pulls apart the machine... There it is, just stuck at the back, a burnt, cold bagel that in the end means nothing. And not to ruin the magic of my own personal mythology, I've owned a printer for the past 18 months and it's been fine. Like, completely fine. But I guess that's because I've been in a happier place of late. And only by watching the rest of The Leftovers will we find out if Kevin and the rest of the cast can find that same stability. I've got a few squid bits for you that I thought you might like. Uh, the bagel moment actually happened to Damon Lindelof while working on the story for this episode. When Dean arrives at Kevin's house, you can hear a news report about butterfly populations rebounding. The butterflies are getting it back on. They're not having existential crisis. I wonder if that means that... No, it was only people that disappeared, wasn't it? It wasn't like 2% of the butterfly population. Or is is that because there's 2% less people and that means butterflies are finding it easier to exist? I've never thought about that before. Hmm. Tell me your thoughts. Go to our Facebook page. Uh, I've set up in our private little conversation area uh, a thread for the leftovers and tell me what your butterfly thoughts are. Uh, getting back to the squid bits, the prodigal son, that comment, uh, that foreshadows the title of the last episode of season one. Uh, 
some differences between the book and the TV series in the book. Holy Wayne isn't in hiding. He's arrested in Philadelphia after being found in a motel with a 15-year-old girl. She claims they're only talking and the charges are dropped, but the public backlash and the embarrassment sends Wayne to a remote ranch in Oregon. Once again in the book, Wayne is arrested when one of his teenage brides goes public, but it is less action-packed, especially, well, Wayne ends up in court in his PJs, so that shows you (laughs) the lack of action going on there. Uh, Wayne selling his hugs to the senators is an invention of the show. Uh, The book never depicts the moment of departure. That's something to remember as well. The opening credits is a reference to the rapture in Christian mythology, which it... Might have been, um, but maybe not. Or maybe it is. Maybe the departure is the rapture. I don't think it is, but it could be. It's up to you to decide. They're not going to tell you uh, what actually happened, and that's part of the fun. You get to project your own thoughts and your own ideas onto what it can all mean. Uh, Returning to the book, Amy moves in with Kevin and Jill because her mother departed and her stepfather made inappropriate remarks to her when he was drunk. Nora having a job with the government is uh, just in the show and also not in the book. Nora also becomes obsessed with her departed son's favourite TV show, SpongeBob SquarePants. That makes a lot of sense to me. And finally, in the book, both of Kevin's parents are dead. And that brings us to the end of this episode of our Leftovers Rewatch. Uh, Thanks for listening to this edition. I'm really loving these one-on-one episodes with you and can't wait to hear your thoughts as we progress further into Season 1. Once again, if you go over to the Facebook page, anyone can join our private page and uh, have a little chat. It's only private, so you can post things without uh, fear of spoilers. On, On the open page... That's essentially there just to let you know that the new podcast is up and about. But there's some great people in there, some really interesting people. I, I, I love catching up with them. Things have been super busy, but uh, when I get in there, it's, there's there's people talking about The Leftovers. There's people talking about uh, all sorts of movies. They're talking about uh, things that they're reading and making suggestions as well. I've uh, discovered some stuff as well that I'm taking on board for whenever I get uh, a little bit more free time. So, if you would like to be a part of that community, it's completely uncynical and good fun. So we'd love to have you there. Uh, as always, I encourage you to find Alan Seppenwall's writing on each episode. They're online. I think they're at Uproxx for maybe the first two seasons. And then I think it goes over to Rolling Stone for the third one. Uh, the aim for this season is to build our audience. So nice reviews online. Or more importantly, word of mouth is the best way to help this grow. Uh, I appreciate your feedback through the socials too. So you can find me at Justin Hamilton Comedian on Instagram or go to our Big Squid private page. Also over at my site, justinhamilton.com.au, you can find a new blog that I wrote this week about how quickly 2021 seems to be progressing. Like I honestly, I'm looking at the date. It's the 18th of February and to me it feels like the 9th of January. I have no idea what is happening. Time is broken. Last year it compressed and now it's stretched and it's snapped and nothing's making sense. Uh, And a quick reminder for people in Adelaide, uh, once again I'll be performing a one-off show at the Rhino Room on the 23rd of February this coming Tuesday at 7.30pm. 7.30 because I'm 48. Let's get out of there, people. Let's have a good time and get a good night's sleep. The show is called Fringe Mode. I'll be celebrating and talking about the last 25 years I've spent performing at the Adelaide Fringe. 
25 years. Just, what is happening? You'll be able to find tickets for that at adelaidecomedy.com or you can roll the dice and see if you can get them on the door. Before you go, there's a scene in this episode of The Leftovers where we see CDs in Nora's car. And one is Let England Shake by PJ Harvey. So let's finish this podcast with a quote from her. PJ Harvey said, I firmly disbelieve that one has to be a tortured soul to write good music. I wonder if that works for other forms of writing. I I guess that does. (sighs) Wish I'd learnt that when I was a teenager and thought you just had to suffer to write some good shit. (sighs) PJ Harvey, where were you when I needed you? (laughs) Until then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.